All right. This week we are starting in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 18. Uh, Speaking of graduates, we have a new graduate here with us. Just walked in the door. Congratulations, Becky. (laughs) Great. Okay, Genesis chapter 18, uh, which means that the last few weeks we've been in Genesis chapter 17, right? Okay. For those of you who are capable of doing higher math. And uh, let's... uh, Well, before we read uh, the passage that we're going to look at today, why don't you uh, just take a moment and glance back through uh, chapter 17 and kind of refresh your mind as to what we talk about. And let's uh, let's see if you can remember anything from the last couple weeks or so. Uh, And then we'll read the passage that we're going to look at in chapter 18 and and go on from there. So, do you remember anything from last week? Yes. <laughs> you may have to wait till you're 99 to have one, but it can happen. Yes, he did. And that experience was what? He was circumcised. He was circumcised, yeah. Uh, that would be, uh, I guess you could say, better late than never. <laughs> so he was circumcised. Why was he circumcised? Excuse me? To seal the deal, okay? As a seal and as a sign of the covenant relationship that he has uh, with God, okay? What else did we talk about? Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. That staff meeting that Abraham had with all the men in his household, you know, to say, Okay, guys, this is what we're doing today. Had to be an interesting meeting indeed. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I ask the question, Scripture really isn't explicit on this and doesn't tell us precisely, but I ask the question, how do you think Abraham convinced his 300 plus men to all be circumcised? What do you think he told them? And I actually made a suggestion. Actually, several people made suggestions. Some people suggested he just pulled rank on them, which, <laughs> which may have been the case. But, uh, but, I, but I think he may have done more than that. What do you, what do you think he did? Make some room for you. Okay. Yeah, isn't that cool? He's saying to them, he's saying, people, this is the promise God's made to me, but you can be included in it. If you're circumcised, you can be included in this in the blessing of this covenant that God has given to me. And so we actually see in this fact that Abraham has not only himself and Ishmael uh, circumcised, but he has everyone in his household, even the foreigner, foreigner men in his household circumcised. Uh, in that, we see the picture of, of the fulfillment or the coming fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham clear back at the very beginning when he said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so what's clear there in the circumcision of all the men of the household is that this blessing of the covenant was going to be extended and offered to everybody, regardless of their race and regardless of their origin. Okay? What else? Well, Rick, this last week I was, have been reading in uh, Romans chapter 2 and where he's talking about 
circumcision is, is nothing if it's on the external only mm-hmm. lab. Mm-hmm. That whole passage explains where the real intent is. And so I, in reflecting back on this passage, started wondering, you know, the scripture here is really pretty sparse when it communicates what happens there. So yeah. We don't know a whole lot. Yeah. But, but I just started wondering, is it possible that there was a, more communicated about this is not just a physical thing that we're doing here. It's not just a promise of God. It's not just a covenant. But it's a really a whole life, a uh, way of life. It's mm-hmm. uh, something that God wants to do in your heart and all those kinds of things. Have you thought about that? <clears throat> Well, I, I do think that oftentimes Scripture doesn't tell us the whole story, uh, and there may have been more. We really, we really don't know. But, but I think that, that when God does call us to take some outward action, whether it's baptism or, or communion or, in this case, circumcision or whatever it is, I think the Lord always does make it known that what's really important is what's going on in the heart. So I'm, so I'm assuming, yes, that, that they knew that there was more than just the outward act here. Uh, but, of course, Scripture doesn't make that clear well, to us. Another thing that happens, uh, you know, in our education, especially when we're young, we can't really handle the whole yeah. story on things that we get a little bit. Yeah. And as we get older, we get more and more. And I wonder if that means... Well, that's certainly some of that is going on here. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. But that does broach the question that I asked towards the end of our lesson last week. How many of these several hundred men who were circumcised on that day, how many of them really did believe in their heart? And I would suggest to you that probably all of them didn't. And I think the evidence is that Ishmael himself did not believe. And the evidence for that comes in a few chapters after the birth of Isaac, which will be approximately a year uh, a year after the events that we were looking at last week, we have the birth of Isaac, and then we see Ishmael is mocking or ridiculing Isaac, uh, which is which is basically uh, an indication that he's ridiculing the promise of God uh, that he sees there in his stepbrother uh, Isaac, and so so it seems apparent that Ishmael himself did not believe the promise, even though he was in fact at that point in time circumcised. So, so the fact that they are circumcised outwardly does, does not necessarily prove or indicate, as Jim was saying, that they were circumcised in their heart. Yeah. Last week you said something that said that they were holy. And I found something while I was thinking about the difference between the covenant and the blessing. Uh-huh. Ishmael would have the blessing and Isaac would have the covenant. Uh-huh. And the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael yeah. With one line they fought together, they formed an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the descendants of Hagar, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia, the people of Tyre, even Assyria, to join them for their strength and the descendants of Lot. Even Lot's descendants were not part of the. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good. Okay, well, let's pick it up then in chapter 18. And uh, we'll read the first 15 verses and how far we get today, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, It's actually a a very rich uh, chapter with a great deal in it to think about. Uh, So we'll see how far we get. But let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. 
And I want to point out to you as we begin reading that this is really, uh, it, it becomes apparent that this is a continuation of the previous narrative. Uh, and the one reason we know that uh, is because you'll notice here in verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord appeared to him. It doesn't name Abraham. It just uses the pronoun here, which indicates that the narrator here uh, has in mind that we're still thinking about the, what he's just previously said. He's just talked about Abraham. Okay, so this this really, in one sense, chapter 18 is a continuation of the narrative of chapter 17. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse one. Now, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Marmory while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves and that you may after that you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender choice calf and gave it to the servant and hurried to prepare it. And he hurried to prepare it. He took the curds and took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am sold? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Okay? Well... <clears throat> Not only is this a uh, this part of the story really kind of a continuation of what he said, uh, what he's just told us about in chapter 17, uh, but it's also a uh, a continuation of the story of Sarah. We we notice that in chapter 17, finally, after all the talk about Abraham for many, many, many chapters, finally the focus finally comes uh, to Sarah, and we just get to get, discover. Uh, Sarah's role and Sarah's part in this whole uh, this whole story of Abraham and the promise and the covenant and all that sort of thing. So finally, the focus has shifted to Sarah, and that's going to continue as the passage unfolds here. Although it's not real clear right at the beginning of the chapter what the intention is, it becomes clear as the story unfolds. This is really about Sarah, and this is about Sarah's role in this whole covenant pro uh, promise and covenant relationship that Abraham has with God. 
And, uh, and so that's, that's really what's going on here. We're learning more about Sarah and, uh, and, and her role in the covenant. <clears throat> I, want you to, I want you to notice also, though, that this is another theophany or Christophany, we may call it. Okay? And by that, we, by that we mean, as we said before, this is an actual visual, physical appearance of God before the incarnation at Bethlehem. Okay, and there are a number of these. There's uh, a number of these in the Old Testament. And another example would be, uh, for example, would be the uh, the appearance of the Lord at the burning bush to Moses. Okay, he doesn't appear in human form there. He appears in the form of a burning bush, but we call it a Christophany or a Theophany. It's an appearance, a visual appearance of God before the incarnation at Bethlehem. Okay, and uh, and we've had already some of those uh, in the life of Abraham. Uh, we had them in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we've had them with Abraham. And uh, they will happen again periodically throughout the unfolding of the Old Testament. This is another one of those cases. This is a different theophany than the one we had in chapter 17. So although this is part of the same narrative as chapter 17, it's a different theophany. But it happens, you'll notice, in very close proximity in time to what happened in chapter 17. So in chapter 17, at the beginning of chapter 17, the Lord appeared to Abraham there and he he identified himself by that new name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And and, and then we have that unfolding uh, uh, Christophany, uh, the dialogue between Abraham and God and all the things that are going on there. That all happens approximately a year before the birth of Isaac. Well, we find out as, as we, in the passage we just read just now in chapter 18, that this is also approximately a year before the birth of Isaac. So we know that these two theophanies occurred in very close proximity to one another historically or chronologically. Okay? They happened at, uh, perhaps within just a few days of one another or within a few weeks of one another. Okay? So with that all kind of as preliminary uh, comments, uh, oh, let, me, let me make one other Remark: We talk about this being a theophany. It's very clear in verse 1. It says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. But then he goes into telling us kind of the details of the story. And he talks about these three men and, uh, and all this interaction that goes on. And, and we may lose sight of the fact that it is, in fact, a theophany. Okay? But it becomes quite clear as the story unfolds, both here in chapter 18 and then on into chapter 19, that the three men are, one, the Lord himself, and two, the other two guys are angels. Okay, and that becomes quite clear to us as the story unfolds. And so we'll see that as we go on. So don't, as we move on into verse two and the verses that follow, don't lose sight of the fact here that we're talking about the Lord. Okay, and we're talking about an encounter that Abraham is having with the Lord. And the question arises in the mind of commentators: Did Abraham know? that he's having an interaction with the Lord. And I'll suggest to you, and I'll show you why, that I think that he does. Uh, but uh, even right from the outset. But uh, we'll get into that as we go on. So uh, all of that is kind of preliminary information for you to, to uh, hang your hat on as we go forward. Okay? So here we are. Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent. It's the middle of the day. Uh, it's midday. It's the heat of the day. 
presumably, uh, he's, he's sitting there. Presumably, he's just had his midday meal. And he's sitting there and he's uh, kind of relaxing, taking it easy, as is the custom in that culture and in that climate. Uh, that they do their work in the morning and they do their work in the evening and during the middle of the day when it's hot, they rest and they relax and they digest their new meal. And this is apparently what Abraham is doing. He's sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of his day and the Lord comes and appears to him. Now, the question is, where is Abraham's tent at this point? Okay, he's got his he's got his tent pitched there by the oaks of Mamre. Okay, now Mamre was a guy. We actually encountered him uh, in chapter uh, 14. He was one of uh, Abraham's allies uh, who joined with him to pursue the kings, uh, the four kings of Mesopotamia, uh, to free Lot and Lot's family. So we've encountered this guy Mamre before, and he apparently lives here in this area of southern Palestine. And uh, which is near what uh, we later come to know of as Hebron. And, uh, and Mamre uh, lives here and, and, and these, uh, this grove of oaks or this forest of oaks or whatever it was is named after him. And Abraham has come and, and set up his tent at Mamre. Okay? But this is when Abraham is 99 years old. I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps and remember back clear back at the very beginning of the story of Abraham. When Abraham first came out of Haran, after God told him to go to a land that he would show him, and Abraham obeyed the Lord, and he left Haran, and he moved down into Canaan. He visited three places in Canaan. Uh, they are back, clear back in chapter 12. Three places are identified that Abram traveled to on that first sojourn into the land of Canaan. Do you remember what those three places were in order? What was the first place he went to? And if you can't remember, it's in chapter 12. So you can look and cheat. And he first comes to Canaan. Where does he go? Pardon? No. No. I mean, there may have been a king there, but it doesn't tell us that. He goes somewhere and he builds an altar. Pardon? Shechem, Shechem. He goes to Shechem, okay? And the Lord speaks to him there, okay? And when we were looking at that part of the story, we talked about Shechem and the meaning of Shechem. We'll come back to that in just a moment. From Shechem, he goes on to where? Bethel, okay? And then there's something that happens at Bethel, and we we talked about that and the significance of Bethel. And then finally, after going to Shechem and then Bethel, then where does he go? To the Negev, towards the Negev, towards the south, okay? And what we understand as the story unfolds is it's referring there to that area around Hebron, the area of the Oaks of Mamre, okay? So Abraham, so the story of Abraham identifies three key places in the land of Canaan that are significant in the life of Abraham and they're also significant in the unfolding story of the patriarchs and even in the unfolding story of the nation of Israel and those three places are Shechem and Bethel and Hebron or the Negev or uh, what we might think of as the Oaks of Mamre. Okay. And if you'll remember back when we talked about that passage, that each one of those areas has some significance. And Shechem is significant because it was the place of choosing. It was the place of decision. 
And it became significant both in, in Abraham's life. It became significant in the life of, uh, of Jacob. And it becomes significant in the life of, uh, life of the nation of Israel when they come in and they take the promised land. Shechem becomes identified as the place of choosing, the place of choice, the place of commitment, the place of decision. Okay? And for Abraham, it's that place, that first place he comes to in Canaan. And God says, this is your future. Okay? And it's at this point that Abraham fully renounces his past and embraces his future. It's the place of choosing. Then, secondly, he goes to Bethel. And when he gets to Bethel, it says there in chapter 12 that he called upon the name of the Lord. And when we talked about that, we pointed out that this is the first time we have Abraham calling on God. Before that time, it was always God speaking to Abraham. But Bethel then begins to represent the place of a deeper relationship with God. This is the place where Abraham begins to call upon God. Of course, he's called Abram at the time. But this is where he begins to call upon the Lord himself. And he enters into this deeper relationship with God. And Bethel becomes, uh, in the whole story of redemption, Bethel becomes associated with this idea of fellowship and communion and relationship with God. And, and Bethel is the place where Abraham, it seems, it appears that his relationship with God takes a step forward at Bethel. Okay. And then from Bethel, you'll remember, he then moves down to... Uh, uh, to the south toward Negev. He comes down towards the Hebron here, what becomes later identified as the Oaks of Mamre. Okay? And for most of the rest of Abraham's sojourn in Israel, not exclusively, but for most of the time, he's living here by the Oaks of Mamre. This is where he is when the whole thing with the battle with the war of the kings develops. Uh, uh, and this is where he'll be living when the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing happens in the next chapter. But this is the place where he spends the bulk of his time in Canaan. Can you remember what significance we attached to that when we looked at that earlier? Okay, okay. The Oaks of Mamre or Hebron or the South in the life of Abraham represents that daily, mundane, everyday, walking faithfully, dwelling in the land, cultivating faithfulness, having the promise given to you, but not yet having the promise fulfilled. So for 25 years, Abraham lives most of his life in this area, having this promise from God of a descendant and of land, and never yet seeing the realization of that promise fulfilled in his life. And for 25 years, Abraham lives there and cultivates faithfulness and waits on the promise of God. And this is where we find him when he finally has, and he's had other ones along the way, but when he has this very profound theophany, this very profound encounter with God, where God comes and visits with him. Okay. Now, God's had several visits with him, and we've looked at those as we've gone through the story. This particular visit really is not so much about Abraham as it is about his wife. Okay. But, but this is where Abraham is when God finally comes to him and says, okay, this is going to happen. It's going to happen within the year. And, and this is what you can expect. And I'm going to come back next year. And you're going to have a son through Sarah, your wife, etc. Okay. And what is interesting to me is that when Abraham finally gets the signal, both in chapter 17 and here in chapter 18, when he finally gets the signal 
that all this stuff is going to kick into gear. That this promise that he's been living with now for 25 years, or 24 years at this point, this promise he's been living with for 24 years is finally going to begin to materialize before his eyes. Where he sees that and where he experiences and then ultimately where it finally happens is not at Shechem. It's not at the place of commitment and decision. And it's not even at Bethel. It's not at that place at which Abraham's relationship with God escalated to a new level. It's not there. But it's by the Oaks of Mamre. It's where he has lived with nothing but the promise of God for 25 years. 24 years at this point. And that's all he's had. All he's had is the Word of God. And up until this point, Every time God came to Abraham and spoke to Abraham, which as we've seen has been several times throughout that period of 24 years, every time that God has come to him and spoken to him and talked to him about this promise, at the end, when God leaves or when God stops talking, the only thing Abraham has each one of those times is still the same thing. The Word of God. That's all he has. He has nothing more. He has no token. He has no symbol. He has no emblem. He has nothing. He has, he has nothing tangible other than the Word of God every time. And he still doesn't. When God leaves him at this point, after this is over and God leaves, he still only has the Word of God. And that's all he had for 25 years. And for Abraham, that was enough. That's all he needed. Not that he didn't stumble at times in faith, as we've seen and we'll see again. But this is what he lived by for 24 years. And it was while he was at Mamre, not while he was at Shechem or Bethel. And he did go back to Bethel. We saw that on occasion. He would go back to Bethel when he knew he needed to make contact with God again. He would go back to Bethel. (laughs) But it wasn't at Shechem. It wasn't at Bethel. But it was at Mamre that God came to him and spoke to him. So God appears. and, And what does Abraham see? He's sitting there in the door of his tent and... He's, you know, I can kind of imagine he's had a good meal. He's sitting there. It's a hot day. He's sitting there in his, uh, in his lawn chair, you know, with his uh, coke there sitting right beside him. And he's got his hands on his tummy and he's kind of dozing off a little bit. And, and then what happens? Excuse me? Okay. He lifts up his eyes and he sees three guys standing opposite him. Okay, so the idea is there's some distance away, but he, but he sees these three, I shouldn't call them guys, I suppose, but he sees three men, okay, standing there. And, uh, and Hal suggests that he knows right away who they are. Uh, I'm not sure he knew immediately who they were, but I think he figures it out pretty quick, okay? What does Abraham do as soon as he sees these three men? Okay, he runs to them. Okay, he runs to them because he's intending to extend to them this invitation to come and visit him. Okay, so he runs to them. Now, we need to understand what's going on here because over the next several verses here, we see this remarkable story of Abraham's hospitality where he runs and he greets them and he wants them to come. And, you know, and he kind of he kind of undersells himself 
Because he says, well, I, you know, you come and I'll bring some water and you can wash your feet and, you can, and, and I'll bring you a piece of bread. Well, he brought him a little more than a piece of bread, you know. Uh, uh, actually, he, he tells his wife, uh, you'll notice, to prepare three measures of, of fine flour. Uh, each one of those measures was the equivalent, as I recall, the equivalent of about, uh, about two or three gallons. Okay. So we're talking about preparing uh, several gallons of gallons measure wise of uh, fine flour. So it was a little more than a piece of bread that he was actually going to provide. We see this remarkable hospitality on the part of Abraham. Now, we need to realize, of course, that this kind of hospitality is a cultural thing. Okay, it's still a cultural thing in that part of the world. And I could if I had time here, I could tell you some stories about the hospitality that my wife encountered when we were in in southern Russia a few years ago. And it's the same kind of thing. People just love to invite you in and feed you up and fatten you up. And, you know, and and you just you can't go in anybody's house without, you know, setting out a spread before you. And so this is a this is a cultural thing. And so when Abraham is. When Abraham is responding this way, in one sense, he's responding culturally. But don't let it escape your notice, however, that that kind of hospitality is a quality of Christian character. And we know that because when we get to the New Testament, several times in the New Testament, this issue of hospitality is stressed. Paul stresses it in Romans. The writer of Hebrews stresses it. Peter stresses it in 1 Peter. This importance of hospitality. And the word hospitality simply means the love of strangers. And so one of the qualities or characteristics of the Christian is that he or she loves strangers. And it manifests itself in, uh, you know, typically when we think of hospitality, we think of opening up your home, you know, making your home a place where people can come and and spend the night or eat a meal or whatever. And just and making people feel at home in your home. We think of that. But when you think about the meaning of the word hospitality, it's the love of strangers. We can show hospitality a lot of places other than our home, can't we? We can show hospitality in Walmart or at the filling station or walking down the street, you know. The idea is when we encounter a stranger and this whole idea of care for the stranger and love for the stranger permeates Scripture and is part of the character of God, it's a characteristic He expects of us, He requires of us that we have a disposition towards strangers, if you will, of love. So when you encounter the clerk, at the filling station <laughs> or when you encounter the, the, the meter maid, you know, out there on the street or when it's somebody who comes knocking at your door, whatever the case may be, the idea is if they're a stranger, it's your obligation to show them love because that's what Jesus does. That's the character of Christ. So even though it is a cultural thing that Abraham's doing here, it's also an aspect of the quality of his character. This is a good man, a man who loves God and a man who understands that God is a friend and lover of strangers. And so that's what he's doing. Yeah, right. This is probably not a very spiritual observation, but I thought it was interesting that he said, go quickly and make bread from scratch. Uh, and your application is? <laughs> yeah, be careful. <laughs> the late, the, that's, my uh, that's your comment. Okay, we won't go any further with that. The ladies are waiting. Well, I was thinking too, I mean, 
Yeah, and actually, there, there is significance in that uh, on two at several levels. One is he's a fairly old man. He's also a fairly uh, 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 a, an important man. He's quite wealthy. He's quite influential. Uh, he's a, you know he's a sheik. He's a you know he's this is a, this is a high dude you know. And in that culture, they didn't run. That's not something they did. It wasn't dignified. Okay. But here, the importance of extending love to a stranger supersedes all of that in the life of Abraham. And so he runs to them. And when he gets to them, what does he say? Okay. He says, my Lord. Now, in your translation, that might all be in small letters. Okay. Which is probably not how it should be written. Okay. Uh, there is a difference. There is a very fine difference between uh, the form of the word that is used here in verse three and the form of the word that is used later in verse 13 when uh, uh, or excuse me, verse 12, when Abraham or when Sarah says about Abraham, my Lord being also old, you know, that's notice that's also all in small letters. OK, but there really is a difference between the form that those two words take in the Hebrew. OK. The, the first one in verse three actually is a form that is, I think is only used exclusively in reference to the Lord God. Whereas the form that is used in verse 12 is used in reference to anyone who is a master over you. OK, uh, so I would suggest to you that the first indication here that Abraham knows that one of these guys is, in fact, the Lord is, his, is what he says here when he calls him my Lord. That he really is acknowledging that this is Adonai. Okay? This is the Lord God. Okay? And he acknowledges that from the outset. Now, I don't know how Abraham knew that. He has had several encounters with God. He's encountered several theophanies, but God doesn't always appear the same in every theophany. So I, I don't know how he knew, but somehow it seems to me, it seems clear from the, from the way the Hebrew is structured here, it seems clear that Abraham understood that this was the Lord. Now, I don't know if he knew that the other two guys were angels. When we get to chapter 19, verse 1, we discover that, in fact, these other two men are angels. Okay? That doesn't become clear through most of chapter 18. But so what, what Abraham has encountered here is the Lord accompanied with two angels. Okay. And so he comes to him. He, Abraham comes to them and he, he bows before them and he addresses uh, the Lord as the Lord. And what is his request? Okay. He qualifies it first by if I have found favor in your eyes, which is a uh, which is a phrase you run into run into it several times in Scripture. It's a phrase or an expression that's always given on the part of a lesser towards a greater. OK, so Abraham is recognizing, first of all, his lesser position. And he says, if I have found favor in your sight. Now, what explicitly is his request? P, please do not pass me by. You see. Abraham's sitting there in the door of his tent and he sees these three men, but they're standing some distance away. He really doesn't know what they're about. He doesn't know what they're up to. He assumes they're going somewhere. 
He assumes they have something to do. And in fact, they do. They're on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. So, but Abraham doesn't know that. He just assumes that, there's, that they've got an agenda. They've got something on their plate, so to speak, that they're about doing. Yes? So your your question is: Is his running evidence that he knew who he was? I, very possibly, yeah, very possibly, yeah. I I don't know for sure, but it is clear by the time he gets there that he knows. How soon he knew, I don't know. Yeah. Showed up. Yeah, I think that's a distinct possibility too. And some commentators uh, suggest that that they just, you know, they appeared and Abraham knew they had just appeared. That they didn't come through the crowd, so to speak. I think that's a distinct possibility. So he runs to them, and but his specific request is, do not pass me by. Now, that's a precious thing for him to say. That's a precious thing for him to say, because I can, I can relate to Abraham at this point. Have you ever felt like God has a lot on his plate? And maybe what you need from God really isn't all that important. You know, you might find this hard to believe. About. I shared this before, but you might find this hard to believe about me because I'm such a loud mouth and outspoken and all that sort of thing. But I am in some ways kind of a shy person. I know, don't laugh here, okay? But I really am. Particularly when it comes to important people. When I'm around important people, I want to kind of just back off and kind of just, you know, I'm kind of all, quit mocking me back there now. Quit laughing at me, Tom. Uh, but, for example, just, you know, here at Trinity, we, we do have the opportunity all the times of having significant people come and speak. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Os Guinness here, okay? And I was eager to hear Os Guinness. You know, I've read some of his books, and, you know, the guy's a great thinker, and, I, you know, I wanted to hear what Oz had to say. So, so I was here in the fellowship hall when he spoke, you know, and I, I got there a little bit earlier, earlier and he, people were mingling around and there was Oz Guinness. I'd never seen the guy before, but you can pick him out of a crowd. He looks intelligent, you know, and he's standing there and he had a whole bunch of the young guys around him asking him questions and stuff. And I was thinking, boy, I'd like to get in there and ask him questions, but I didn't. I just went over and found my chair and sat down because why would Oz Guinness want to talk to me? You know, I'm nobody. And, and I'm that way with important people and I'm that way sometimes with God. Maybe you are too. That when I think about the issues that I'm dealing with and the issues I'm wrestling with, when I think about, I really want to have an encounter with God. You know, I read the books about other people and these great experiences they have with God. You know, all the great spiritual leaders and Christian leaders and men of God and, you know, and and even people here at Trinity. And I think, well, of course, God would stop and spend time with them. I mean, they're important. But I'm just little old Rick. I'm just a house painter. 
You know, I'm, I'm nothing. And my problems, you know, they're big to me, but, but God's got other issues in the world. He's got tsunamis and earthquakes and wars and all. He's got all kinds of stuff on His plate. But in Abraham, I see an example of a man who would come to God and say, God, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass me by. You know, Fanny Crosby, a number of years ago, wrote, <coughs> wrote a hymn uh, along that line. I don't know if she was using this passage. I assume she probably was. <coughs> but she, in, she entitled it, uh, was it Savior, Do Not Pass Me By, I think it is. Uh, uh, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior is the name of it. And, uh, and the chorus goes like this. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And in the life of Abraham, I see an example I can follow. In the life of Abraham, I see a guy who's so humble that he recognizes that God has important things to do. But that he's also a God of grace and a God of mercy. And based on that knowledge of God as a God of grace and God of mercy, as Abraham comes to God, he says to God, I don't know what you got on your plate. I don't know where you're headed and what you're going to do. But I really desire that you would extend to me the grace of not passing me by. Would you come and just visit with me for a while? And in his example, I see the, the challenge to us to go to God in, in a plea for his mercy and say, God, I know you've got a lot on your plate and you've got a lot of people you're dealing with, but God, I need a visit from you. I just need a visit from you. Now, Abraham had two things in his mind, I think, <laughs> that become clear in the passage that he wanted when he wanted this visit from God. And one thing was, he just wanted the sheer pleasure of serving the Lord. That's all he wanted. He just wanted the pleasure of blessing God. How many times do we think of those words of the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and everything that is within me. Bless His holy name. Do you have any clue what that means? The word blessed means what? What does it mean? What is blessing? Happy Happiness. So when I'm, when I'm saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all those with me, bless His holy... What am I doing? I am wanting and desiring that from my soul things would emanate which would bless the heart of God, which would make God happy. And that's one of the things Abraham wants to do. He just wants to bless the Lord. Now, he's, he's seen the Lord in a physical form here. Of course, we know the Lord is God and he, you know, he never grows weary or tired, but in, he's here in human form and Abraham wants to see him refreshed. Abraham wants him to rest in his place, in his tent, under his tree. 
He just wants to bless the Lord. That's one of the things he wants. The other thing Abraham wants, and this becomes, I think, clear as we see his behavior, is that he wants to just stand there and absorb the presence of God. He just wants to experience the presence of God in his life and in his house and in his family. Those are two admirable things that we can desire when we seek the presence of God. When we seek a visitation from God, I could say, God, I really want you to visit me because I want God to bless you. And I want to sense your presence. I want to know know the pleasure of just being around you and hearing you speak and watching you act. God, in all your busyness and all the things you are doing, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass me by. And so, the Lord and his two companions consent. And they say, great, we'll do this. You, you know, go and do what you said. You know. So then Abraham kicks into high gear. <laughs> and he runs into the tent. And he, and he, you know, and how many times have we done this to our wives, guys? <laughs> Mary, I need this now. Quick, you know. And my wife always gives me this. In my good time, Rick. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so... At any rate, Abraham's like the typical guy. He comes running in. He says, I need this now. And he, and he gets his wife cooking the bread. And then he runs out and he grabs, the, grabs the, the choice tender calf and he gives it to his servant. And he tells his servant to hurry. And then he runs and he gets the curds and the milk. And he brings us all finally and he brings it to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice uh, the detail here. Notice the detail. Why is Moses bothering to take the time here? He's got the whole Pentateuch to write. (laughs) Why is Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, taking the time to detail all these minute little things that Abraham does as he prepares for the visitation of God? Okay. Okay. Okay, why does God care if we know that? All those details he went to. Because <laughs> God notices all those details. Uh, I, absolutely, I think that's what he's doing. Excuse me if I get a little emotional here, but I was thinking about that new mother in our family who's having her first, her first Mother's Day today. And I was thinking how many times over the next few years she's going to be completely, totally overwhelmed by changing diapers and stuffing food in mouths and picking up messes. And, and there'll be times when it just seems like she won't be able to go another day. And I think the lesson we have here, the Holy Spirit takes time to record all these details is to point out to us that God notices every one of those things that we do in his service. Every little thing you do, he notices. It seems little to you. It may seem unimportant to you. It's just part of the humdrum of everyday life to you. But if it is done in his name, he notices it. And I would suggest to you that just as it was written here, just as what Abraham did here was written down, I would suggest to you that he is writing a book of remembrance for everything you do. Why would I say that? 
Well, in Malachi, we learn the Lord says in the book of Malachi, he says when two people are standing together and talking about the Lord. That he causes a book of remembrance to be written about the two things those people are saying to each other about him. So. I can't hear. You'll have to open the door. I can't hear through the door. Oh, well, go, turn it up right there. Would you turn it <laughs> Yeah, go ahead and turn it up a few degrees for him, Teresa. Thank you. Um, so the, the point is, the point is that God notices those things we do for him. God notices when we talk about him. And there in Malachi, he says, a book of remembrance is written for them. And I think, he's, I think the point that we learn here is God takes all this time to detail all these things in the life of Abraham. Is that he's, what he's saying to us is, I noticed. And I appreciate it. I have no idea why God notices all the little things I do. They're nothing compared to what he does. But every little thing you do, he notices and he cares. Well, yeah. As a mother or a father, when Yeah. Yeah. Just look at my refrigerator. <laughs> I go, why are we still saving that picture? We have a cardboard contraption. It's a cardboard contraption by our front door that's been there since what was it? what year did it come home, Teresa? Do you remember what year? It's been there uh, about eight years. It's just a cardboard and stick contraption. But it was my son's first architecture project in his freshman first semester of his freshman year at OU. So however long ago that was, you know, eight, nine years ago now, ten years, I don't know how long ago, it's still there in front of our front door. It's something, you know, I say, Mary, can we? No way! This is my son's first architecture project. Well, that's the way God feels about us. Speaking of architecture, that's a good example. If you stop and think about who you consider to be great architects, one of the things that's amazing about them is their attention to detail. Yeah, yeah. And they all, I mean, you walk in a house and the house looks nice, but if you walk in a house that's been completely designed, and I'm thinking of Frank Lloyd Wright's Wilby House, if you ever get a chance to visit that, you may not like his architecture. I, quite frankly, the house seems a little to me, but if you walk around and look, his style and his design, he has designed the light fixtures, mm-hmm. the light switches, mm-hmm. all the little details. And when you, when you start studying that, you realize this is not just a house. This man, this man spent hours and time to tie all yeah. together and make yeah. a great design. Yeah. And the secret is in the detail. Yeah. So God notices those things and He cares about those things. Well, let's just do a little bit more here and then we'll finish the passage next week. Now, Abraham is, now that he's got dinner laid out for these guys, what's he doing? Well, that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. 
But now when he's got the whole spread laid out in front of him and they're actually eating, what is Abraham doing? He's standing there. Okay, He's not sitting there eating with them. He's standing there. He's acting like a servant. But think about what else is going on. Have you ever asked yourself, and you probably haven't, because I don't think I ever asked myself this until yesterday, but have you ever asked yourself, what do God and the angels talk about? Well, I have no idea. But Abraham does. Abraham does. Can you imagine that? Standing there listening to the Lord and the angels have a conversation over dinner. Man. You think you would have been even more awed if you knew who the two angels were? Uh, well, I, yeah, and maybe he did. I don't know if he did, but I. Yeah. 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 These guys are pretty awesome guys. Yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> so, at any rate, he's standing there and he's listening. And then these guys ask a question. And what is the question they ask? Where is Sarah, your wife? That's a good question. Which goes back to it kind of shows the character of God that what you were saying is he was looking at the details of what we did. And we don't need to know the details of what goes on up there mm-hmm. if he doesn't tell us. Yeah. Well, it's been eternity. Do you think they have anything left to talk about? Again, it shows the interest of God. It's kind of like you have a selfless God. I mean, if you're a big shot, you're, you want to be able to talk to him. Yeah. And want everybody to listen to you. And God is not like that. Yeah. Even though he's God, he, he's interested in us. That's a, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. That's a good point. Yeah, he doesn't. And But then he says, then he says, where is Sarah, your wife? To which Abraham says, they're in the tent. You know, it's, you know, yeah, my wife's busy. <laughs> She's over there, you know. Why did they ask this question? In the first place, God knows where she is, right? Because we find out here later, we won't get to it till next week, we'll see now. But, but, but it's clear that God can actually read her mind, right? So, he knows where she is. And to Abraham, it's really not important where she is. Oh, she's over there in the tent. So why did they ask the question? Where is she? Okay, she's standing in the door of the tent and she's listening. And so the reason the question was asked, it wasn't asked for Abraham's sake. It wasn't asked for the Lord's sake. The question was asked for Sarah's sake. The Lord is trying to get Sarah's attention. And what's interesting to me here is, why does God bother to talk to Sarah so obliquely? Why doesn't he just turn around and talk to Sarah? Why does he do all of this 
through Abraham? I don't have an answer to that question, but I have several possibilities. One is, one possibility I think of, and you'll have to take it for what it's worth, is that Sarah is struggling still with doubt. She's struggling with faith. That will become clear as we'll see next week. Okay, And so, it doesn't... Maybe the Lord didn't want to direct her, directly speak to her because... She's not yet ready to embrace what he says. Maybe he doesn't talk to her directly because it's a cultural thing and God's just respecting the culture. Okay. Maybe he wants to talk obliquely to her through Abraham because because what's going to happen in Sarah's life is part of, of her being one with Abraham. She's his wife and they are of one flesh. And they are one in this covenant together. And so it's not just about her, but it's about her and Abraham. I don't know the answer to the question, but what is what is obvious here, I think, is that God wants Sarah's attention because God wants Sarah to hear what he is about to say. And so, yeah, yeah I, I have no doubt he told her. I have no doubt he told her. Which makes, I think, her laughing and her doubting, which we'll see next week, uh, so much more serious. But we're out of time. So we'll have to get to that next week. Okay? Thanks.